All right, good morning, church. Good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. And while you're turning there, um, I just want to first of all say that it's really good to be a part of this fellowship, of this local expression of God's church. And Adrian and I are really excited to be here, be a part of what God is doing through this church. Um, she can't be here this morning. She would rather be here, but she is at home taking care of our two girls uh, who are both sick today. So um, pray for her this morning as well. But we'll be looking, as Chris said this morning, at a, what it means to be a community on mission. And so today's sermon is about the church, and we'll examine from this passage in Acts chapter 2, uh, an example of the early church. And so this passage applies to the universal church, which is all believers of all time, but it also applies to this local expression of God's church. It applies to Redeeming Grace Community Church in Loganville, Georgia in 2017. And it applies to us as individuals as well, as men and women who are pursuing God and pursuing the mission that he has for us and the purpose that he has for our lives. And so I want to begin before we begin reading the passage this morning by just asking you a question um, that you may not think a lot about, but I want you to just ask yourself why you came to uh, church this morning. Why did you make the effort to get up on a Sunday morning and get ready for church and come? So some people come to church and they choose a church because of the other people that are there. Some people choose a church because of the music style or the worship style. Some people uh, choose a church because um, of, of different aspects of the church. It might have a good children's <laughs> ministry. Um, we, uh, you may have come to church this morning because we had an awesome breakfast this morning. Uh, I don't know what your reason was, but hopefully your reason for coming to church is a lot to do with what we're going to talk about this morning, maybe the more, of those, more so than those other reasons, more so than um, what it is that the church has to give to you, but what is it that God's calling you to be a part of through the church? How does your life story intersect with what God's doing through his church? And so uh, in our passage this morning, there are some compelling reasons not only to come to church, but also to be a part of the church, to be part of the community that is on mission. And so before we read our passage, just a couple definitions, I guess, about what we mean when we say community and what we mean when we say mission. So when we say community, we mean sharing our lives together and that means that we're loving one another and that we're encouraging one another. So community is sharing our lives together, and we do that by encouraging one another and by loving one another. And then when we talk about mission, what we really mean by mission is that mission is intentionally loving those who are outside of the church and pointing them to Jesus by sharing the gospel. So loving those outside of the church, pointing them to Jesus by sharing the gospel with them. And so if you would look at your, your Bibles with me this morning, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. It's our main text. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God add his blessing and favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we do thank you this morning that you have called us to be a part of the church. And Father, we stand in awe of that because there is nothing inside of ourselves that would merit that. There's nothing that would merit grace and mercy and love for you. But because of your goodness, you lavish all of those things upon us. And so, God, we thank you for calling us to be a part of the family, of the church. And, Father, we thank you for, in your sovereignty, placing this church, this local expression of your church here in Loganville, Georgia. And we pray that we would be a community on mission as we're following you and that we would do that in a way that honors you and glorifies you and that we would do that with a biblical pattern in mind. So we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We pray that you would bring conviction in our lives where there needs to be conviction. I pray that you would bring encouragement in our lives where there needs to be encouragement. I pray that as we read through the text this morning, we would see you high and lifted up. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage that we read, there's a few things that the early church devoted themselves to. They were committed to. When you think about that word devotion, it means that you're committed to something. And so they're committed, first of all, to the word. And so we see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they were devoted to this teaching of the apostles who were the authority in the early church. They were the people who delivered God's word to the early church as the early church began to form. And so this means really that they were steadfast and that they were committed to the truth. They were committed to the word of God as it was taught by the apostles. And so I'm going to ask us to turn some different places this morning just to see some other examples of what's happening here in the early church in Acts. So the first place I'm going to ask you to turn is in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. And the very first Psalm, Psalm 1, gives us a great picture of what it means to be committed to the Word of God and what that looks like in our lives. So if you'll join me as we look at Psalm 1, the first few verses, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor seats in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So that's a picture of someone who is committed to the word of God. He or she is like a 
tree that's planted by the water. A tree that's planted by the water is a healthy tree that's growing and it's producing fruit. It's bearing its fruit. It's, it's fulfilling its purpose. And so when we look at this early church being committed to the apostles' teaching, I think this is a great picture of what was happening in the early church. They're growing and they're flourishing because they're committed to the Word of God. They weren't carried along by every wind of doctrine like Ephesians chapter 4 warns us not to be. And then one more passage um, I want you to look at is 2 Timothy with me, chapter chapter, uh, 3 of 2 Timothy. And so when we look at 2 Timothy, you may be familiar with this passage. This passage tells us about the, the scripture that is breathed out by God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us to, that the word of God is... Um, that the word of God is literally breathed out by God. So chapter 3, verse 16, let me find it and then I'll read it. Okay, so all scripture is breathed out by God and listen to what it does as we look at scripture. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So if you want to be equipped for every good work, if you want to do something great in the kingdom of God, it starts with the word of God. And I love that this passage in Timothy tells us that scripture is literally the breath of God. And so you don't have to try this right now. You can try it at home when no one's looking. But I want you at some point to take your hand and just put it directly in front of your mouth when you're talking. And you can literally fill your breath, right? It's it's part of your speech. And so what the scripture is saying is it's saying the word of God that we have, your Bible is literally breathed out by God. It's literally the voice of God. It's literally God speaking to you. And I think so many times as Christians, it's easy for us to neglect how powerful and how profound the Word of God is. I think we, we just get so involved in day-to-day lives and our lives and our routines that we forget that this is a profound prophetic, powerful word of God. And so this, this also, scripture also tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, you don't have to turn there, you can write it down, but this tells us that scripture is like a sword, and it divides joints and marrow. And so what that scripture means, and the author of Hebrews tells us, it is that the word of God literally divides what is spiritual and what is not spiritual. And so if you want to know who you really are as a Christian, who you really are in your spiritual life, the Word of God tells us that. And Scripture tells us that it's like a sword and it separates what is not spiritual and what is spiritual. What is of the flesh, what is of the world, what is of you, and then what is of God, what is spiritual, what He wants us to know. So Scripture points that out to us. And these people in Acts, in the early church, are committed to the Word of God just as we should be committed to the Word of God in our local expression of God's church as well. And then the second thing that they're committed to is fellowship. So this means partnering or sharing. And so we're unified together 
as believers. Because you're a believer, I'm a, br- a believer, we are brothers and we are sisters in the Lord. And this is made possible by the blood of Christ. In fact, Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. This is right before he is about to go to the cross and be crucified and die and be buried and, and experience the resurrection. Right before that, that week of his life, he prays in the high priestly prayer that believers would be one, and he prays to the Father just as you and I are one. And then he says something really radical in his prayer. He says that when we are one, it's believers, then the world would know him because of our love for one another. And you've been in church maybe long enough, and I've been in church long enough where we don't always see that happen. We don't always see that kind of love. And so my prayer is that we would be a church where we do display that kind of love. And when we don't display that kind of love, that we would be honest and that we would be sincere and that we would be repentant and that we would share that kind of love with one another that the world may know him. So one more place I'm going to ask you to turn is Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we will start in verse 11. And, the, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this is a great picture of what it means to love one another, to have fellowship. It means that we're sharing lives together, that you're using your gifts and you're using your talents for the good of the body of Christ in order that we may continue to grow and mature in our faith and speak the truth to one another in love. And so then the third thing that they're committed to here in Acts is that they are committed to the breaking of bread. And so we read this and, and we, we um, automatically think part of fellowship, and it is part of fellowship. But when Scripture says the breaking of bread, it means more than that. Scholars tell us that this likely refers to coming to the Lord's table together and sharing communion together, participating in the Lord's Supper together, that we may remember what Christ has done for us, what Christ has done on the cross for us. And so every time we do this, we remember what Christ has done. We remember the gospel. And it's important to remember what the gospel is all about because there's a lot of false gospels in our culture and in our lives and in our society. And so a false gospel would say that at the fall we lost a lot and that Christ did a lot and we get a lot. But the true gospel says at the fall 
we lost it all because we have sinned. Christ did it all because we could do nothing, and then Christ gave it all. He gave us forgiveness. He gave us grace. He gave us eternal life through his Son. And so the true gospel says much about God and less about us. And so I want us to look at a passage, I think, that clarifies this. So I'm going to ask you to turn again right past Ephesians to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18. Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So I love this passage. It reminds me of the old hymn that we used to sing at the church I grew up in. I owed a debt I couldn't pay. He paid a debt that I uh, that I couldn't uh, or I couldn't pay. I guess I'm not. I don't know. It was a long time ago, but you know what I mean. And so when this when we see this passage, it's amazing to me because it talks about this record of debt that we have. And so you have this record of debt. I have this record of debt, and it's filled with all of our sins. It's filled with all of the times that we've fallen short. It's filled with all of the times that we've gone against God. And then what this passage in Colossians tells us and what the gospel tells us and what we remember when we break bread together is that Christ took this record of debt on the cross, and our record of debt was canceled because it was literally nailed to the cross and it was covered by the blood of Jesus and that's an amazing thing that we should never grow weary of and that we should never forget and by coming together and breaking bread together and remembering what Christ has done for us we are compelled to live out the gospel in our lives daily not just once a week on Sunday mornings but every day where we live where we work and where we play so then the right behind this, the, the early church in Acts comes to the prayers. And it says they were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And so the fourth thing that we should be uh, devoted to is prayer. I had a um, professor in seminary who one day he started class and he said, Gentlemen, I want you to know that I am a man of prayer. I thought, well, that sounds a little self-righteous. And he says, that may sound pious. I was thinking, yeah, it kind of does. And um, he said, but I want you to know that I couldn't do this thing if I wasn't a man of prayer. And I thought, man, that is so true. I could not live out my Christian faith. I could not serve the Lord. I couldn't serve others if I wasn't in prayer. And so it may sound self-righteous to say that you're a man or that you're a woman of prayer, but you can't do this thing if you're not a man or a woman of prayer. I read a book recently by a guy named Gregory Frizzell, and besides having an awesome name, he has a great book, and it says, no, he says in this, he, he says, no one's relationship with Christ will ever rise above the level of his or her praying. 
It's a great little book called How to Develop a Powerful Prayer Life. It's really short if you're interested in growing deeper in your prayer life. And Frizzell also says in that book that he creates time, space in his week every week to pray. And so he talked about how he was struggling to get up in the mornings. I get that. I have really good intentions, and then I just kind of keep hitting the snooze alarm, especially since the time has changed. So that may be your experience as well. And it was for Frizzle, and he said, I really wanted to pray, and the only time that I can make uninterrupted prayer time happen was early in the morning. So he talks about how he set an alarm clock on his dresser and a coffee pot right next to his dresser. And so he said, I did whatever I had to do to make sure that I'm getting up and I'm spending some time in prayer. And that may work for you. It may be something else. It may be a time in the evening. It may be a time on your lunch break. Whenever it is, make sure that you have space and that you have room in your in your day to pray and communicate with your Heavenly Father. And then the second thing I think that would help our prayer lives is to find prayer partners. I have a couple guys in my life who I call often and I share with them things to pray for. And the great thing um, is that you can have a prayer partner that doesn't even live nearby you. One of my friends who's been a prayer partner for years and years and years um, recently moved to Louisiana. And so every week we still talk on the phone because he's in Louisiana and we talk every day or every week in the afternoon on, on our way home and we can even pray for one another as we're talking over the phone. And so <clears throat> then I think the third thing that we should do in our prayer lives is be honest in your prayers. And so I've met a lot of people over the years who say, you know, I just can't tell God that. And um, I want to let you in on a little secret. He knows anyway. He knows everything. And so um, our prayers should be real, and they should be honest, and they should be genuine before God, because that's when he comes into our lives, and he works, and he changes our lives. And so prayer isn't to get God on our page and on our agenda, but prayer is to get us on God's page, on his agenda. And so then we continue in Acts chapter uh, 2, and we see some more things that they were devoted to. First, um, we'll skip down to verse uh, 44. I'll come back to 43 in a minute. But it says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and disturbing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so when we look at this particular passage, we see a church that is generous, we see a church that is giving, we see a church that cares about one another. And so the early church makes it a priority to serve others, and they make it specifically a priority to serve the poor with generous hearts. And they do this as part of the mission. This is part of our mission as the church. In North America, and in particular here in suburban North America, we experience a great amount of wealth compared to the rest of the world. But the reality is in inner cities in the U.S. and in rural Appalachia in the U.S. and even in our own city, there are people who are struggling with poverty. They're struggling, and money is a real issue. Getting through day-to-day -day needs in life is a real issue. And so I think from Scripture we have a responsibility 
to do something about that, to serve them in a real tangible way. And so I want us to just turn over one page likely in your Bible to Acts chapter two or Acts chapter four from Acts chapter two. And here we see a example of, of the church doing this maybe even more in depth than in chapter two. Verse thirty two of chapter four Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. As for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and bought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And so we see the early church literally selling their stuff so that they can meet the tangible needs of others in their community. And I think that they do that not because they just want to have the tangible needs met, but because that shows the love of God. That shows the gospel. That meets the needs of others because Christ has met our deepest need by forgiving us of our sin. So 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but does not have pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And so I think it's clear that we have a biblical responsibility, a biblical mandate to serve others and specifically serve those who are poor. Um, I don't know exactly what that looks like in my life. I don't know what that looks like for the life of our church, but I do know that it's part of our mission. I want to just invite you to join me in praying about that, praying with me on that. What is it that God wants us to do in order to take this particular aspect of service seriously and do something about it in our community and around the world? So the poor don't need us, but what they do need is the love of God, and meeting physical needs can also meet spiritual needs. And then the last part that they're devoted to here, if you go back to chapter 2, is that they're devoted to worship. Um, It says in verse 47 that they are praising God and having favor with all people. And then if you go back to verse 43, it says, All came upon every soul. And so there's this aspect that they are praising God, they are worshiping God, and they are in awe of what he has done. And so there may be some times you can think back in your life and you can say, oh, that was a moment where I really understood what awe was, right? Like I remember a few of those times in my life, probably the first moment I really understood what it meant to be in awe of something was when I was a kid and I went to my first Braves game at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and I walked out and I saw the Major League Baseball field and I was just in awe in that moment because it was so pristine and it was so huge and it was something that I had watched on TV for 162 nights a year and now there it was right in front of me in real life and so I remember also I went on a mission trip to 
Alaska and I saw Mount McKinley and I saw it from a great distance. I didn't climb Mount McKinley or anything, but I saw it. And it's the second largest mountain in the entire world. And I remember just standing there and being in awe of what was before me. And then I also remember my wedding day. And if you're here and you're married, you probably have had a similar experience. I remember I was standing at the front, and when the back doors of the church opened and my wife walked out, um, I was in awe of how beautiful she was and how wonderful the day was. And I was in awe in that moment. And then years later, when my two babies were born and I held them for the first time, that's one of those moments where I was just in awe awe of what I was seeing before my eyes and when you have those moments when you're in awe it's almost just like a moment of disbelief right and so that's what it should be like when we see God for who he is because God is greater than even those most terrific awe moments of our life and he is more majestic than any of those things and we should make sure that we are not forgetting to be in awe of him and to worship him and so this this uh word awe really means a sense of reverence and godly respect and and it's of the signs and wonders but it's important to note that the awe isn't because of signs and wonders done by the apostles. It's in awe of signs and wonders that are done through the apostles because God is the one who is doing the work. God is the one who is doing the signs and the wonders. So if God is going to do something in the life of our church and in the lives of us as individuals that people would step back and be in awe of God about, then it takes us being willing to submit to him and allow him to do a work through us where he gets all of the credit. Because in verse 47, when it says that they're praising God, it means that they're giving him all of the credit. They're giving him all of the honor. And so we all worship something. And if you were to spend enough time with me and I were to spend enough time with you, it wouldn't take us long to figure out what one another worships because we all worship what we are most committed to. And so if you want to examine your worship, examine what you're committed to. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? What are your, where is your attention given? And so I want us to close as we're thinking about worship um, with a challenge. The challenge, I think, is, is for us to get in the game, to be a part of the story, for us to join in with what God is doing. And we do that by de- being devoted to the same things that the early church was devoted to here. If we want to be a com- community on mission, then we have to be devoted to these things. And imagine what would happen in our neighborhood, in our nation, and even around the world if this group of believers at Redeeming Grace, this local expression of God's church was really committed to these things that the early church was committed to. We see what happens in the early church at the end of verse 47. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so I want to end with this story. Earlier we sang the old hymn, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's one of my favorite hymns um, of, of all time, and it was written in 1757. It was written by a man named Robert Robinson. Robert Rob- Robinson lived in 18th century England, and when he was a small boy, his dad passed away. And in England in the 18th century, there wasn't very much of a welfare system, 
And so he had to go to work while he was still very young. So without a father around to help guide him and to help steady him in his life, he fell in with some bad companions. And so one day he and and a group of his friends began to harass a gypsy. And so um, they were teasing her and wanting her to tell them their fortunes. And so she told them that he was going to live to see his children and his grandchildren. So that really impacted him, and Robinson started to think, if I'm really going to live to see my children and my grandchildren, I've got to change the way that I'm living. And so he went to hear the Methodist preacher, George Whitfield. And Whitfield preached on Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, and at the age of 20, Robert Robertson came to the Lord. And so two years later, he wrote that song in 1757 that we sang earlier. And part of that song says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. So the story is that Robinson did indeed wonder um, away from his faith. First, he left the Methodist faith and became a Baptist, which in a Baptist church, we would say that may not be a bad thing, right? But then even more, he wondered, and some say that he left his faith altogether. And the story is that some years later, Robinson was riding in a stagecoach, and a lady was humming that tune, Come Thou Fount, of every blessing and she said do you know the words to that song and he said madam i am the poor miserable man who wrote that song so many years ago and i don't know if if that's true or not but i do know that a lot of us have been there a lot of us have wandered away a lot of us have left some of the things that that God has called us to do. And so I started thinking, what would I tell Robinson if I was in the stagecoach with he and the lady who was humming that tune that day? I think I would say, remember. I think I would say, remember what it was like when you were devoted to the things that God wanted you to be devoted to. Remember what it was like when you were devoted to the Word. Remember what it was like when you remembered the, the gospel and you were in awe of that. Remember what it was like when you had a passionate and a, and a consistent prayer life. Remember what it was like, Robinson, when you let, went into ministry and you served others and you served the, fo- the poor. Remember what it was like when you worshipped God corporately and individually and that was your lifestyle. And so I think for us, the call is to remember. Whether you've wandered away like Robinson or whether you're, you're just needing a reminder this morning, be reminded that we're part of something greater than ourselves. We're part of a community that's on mission, and it's profound that the God of the ages, the God of the universe, would call us to be a part of that story. So I want to pray that God would just appropriate this truth into our hearts and help us remember.